You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of all the media reports about research into the causes and treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years of private practice in psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and requiring treatment. And welcome again. It is the show that will hopefully air Wednesday evening, uh, February 12, 2014. I say that because, well, the show is pre-recorded. And at the time I'm recording the show, the weather forecast calls for freezing rain starting uh, very, very early Wednesday morning on the 12th, continuing throughout the day. So there's no telling what will be happening at the America's Web Radio workshop and studios and uh, whether this show will, in fact, air that evening or not. But regardless, I'm sure if it doesn't get on the air on the 12th at 7 p.m. Wednesday night, Eastern Time, it'll get on the, on the air eventually. And uh, regardless of when you hear this, I thank you very much for tuning in. And I welcome your feedback on the show. Uh, if any of you want to give me any questions or comments regarding anything that I've discussed on the show, any feedback about it, or more importantly, if you have any mental health-related problems or concerns or questions that uh, you'd like my help with, I would love to be able to address those concerns for you and uh, give you some advice as to how to get the help that you need. So feel free to give me all your feedback about the show and all your questions related to mental health issues. And you can send that to me to this email address. It's Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S. Com, and I assure any of you who choose to send an email to me that uh, no identifying information will be mentioned so that uh, there will be the strictest confidentiality observed. Well, as uh, Metro Atlanta once again hunkers down for uh, a paralyzing ice storm, uh, the populace here are still traumatized by what happened two weeks ago where a relatively light snowstorm iced over and caused everyone to be spinning their wheels quite literally, abandoning their cars and uh, really destroyed morale in a very serious way for a good uh, 36 hours or so. And uh, no doubt there's some post-traumatic stress from that incident as this storm system approaches. Uh, but <clears throat> I think 
lessons have been learned. Uh, schools were closed proactively. No doubt businesses closed proactively. Getting into the act myself personally, my office is closed for February 12th. And uh, certainly the authorities who look after the conditions of the roads are much more on their toes. Uh, Atlanta was the laughing stock of the country after being paralyzed by a very light snowfall and two weeks ago. We'll see how things go this time, hopefully a lot better. And hopefully the conditions are better wherever you're listening to my show from. However, it is the middle of winter, so uh, those of you suffering from winter depression or seasonal affective disorder, I uh, hope that you're not suffering too badly. Remember to get plenty of bright light early in the morning. If it's sunny, even if it's cold, take advantage of that. Well, as you know, I always talk about what's current in the news that relates somehow or another to mental health. And since nowadays, smartphones have proliferated to such a degree that they're practically uh, another appendage of our bodies. And since many times on the show I've talked to you about proper sleep hygiene, which includes avoiding the very bright lights that come from screens, such as high-definition type televisions, computers, laptops, tablets, and smartphones. Uh, Because that's all been an important topic, this article caught my eye. It says, smartphone use for business at night may not be so smart. Now, as smartphones have become the must-have technology for millions of Americans, the opportunity to call, text, or email is often just an arm's length away, day or night. But new research cautions that using smartphones to attend to work after hours can actually disrupt sleep and undermine overall productivity, leaving workers tired and unfocused during the day. I can hear a lot of you listening to that and saying out loud or to yourself, yeah, tell that to my boss. But what happens in these situations is, on the one hand, people are using their phones to conduct work late into the night. Then they're less able to detach and dissociate from their job, which makes sleeping more difficult and then leads to mental fatigue. At the same time, the specific type of light, this blue light, that's a certain wavelength of light given off by these devices interferes with the otherwise appropriate secretion of the sleep hormone melatonin, which happens after sundown. So there's this psychological and physiological impact on sleep that can make it more difficult to engage the next day at work. Just an aside here, uh, many of you may recognize the name melatonin as something that is sold over the counter. It is sold as a natural sleep supplement and as I often like to debunk myths and misconceptions, uh, I want to tell those of you who aren't already aware, melatonin is a hormone. It is secreted by the pineal gland 
a small gland at the base of the brain, its function is to prepare the body for sleep. And its secretion by this gland is triggered by the lack of light outside. When the sun goes down, melatonin starts to be secreted. And <clears throat> bright light, such as sunlight, suppresses the release of serotonin. And thereby that is the mechanism where a bright light from electronic display screens will suppress melatonin secretion and therefore interfere with the proper onset of sleep. Now, this latest research about smartphones was published <clears throat> in the journal Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes, certainly a business-related uh, publication. The authors noted that the National Sleep Foundation estimates that 6 in 10 Americans say that most of the time they are not getting sufficient sleep. To explore how smartphones might compound this problem, the authors conducted two series of surveys. The first survey tapped into the experiences of 82 mostly male upper-level managers. All were taking weekend classes to earn a Master's in Business Administration or MBA degree. They completed questionnaires at different times of the day over a two-week period, tallying how often smartphones were used to take care of business after 9 p.m. Interesting that they made the cutoff 9 p.m. I would think it should be even earlier. In any case, survey items also addressed sleep quality at night and daytime alertness while at work. They did not collect any information regarding smartphone use at night strictly for social purposes. The result was that use of smartphones for bedside business was associated with sleeping less, and sleeping less, in turn, was associated with energy depletion in the morning and feeling less engaged on the job. Respondents who indicated having a greater degree of control over their job seemed to suffer less smartphone-related energy depletion the following morning compared to those who felt their job control was generally low. Hey, I want you to remember that difference there about feeling in control or not. That relates to another article we're going to be discussing later in the show. <clears throat> there was another survey that focused on 136 employees representing a wide range of fields including retail, manufacturing, media, and the health industry. Their average age was about 31. They were more evenly split between men and women, 54% versus 46%, and they responded to similar survey questions while also revealing how much they used other devices at night including laptops, tablets, and TVs. The results of the second survey confirmed those of the first. An added finding was that work-related smartphone use at night had a notably larger negative impact on sleep and daytime work focus than nighttime use of other devices. For example, although people would view TV after 9 p.m., for an average of 45 to 50 minutes per night, 
They looked at the relationship between TV use and mental fatigue the next morning, but really didn't find one. And they guessed that was because TV watching was not about work, whereas the smartphone use they looked at was. So they don't know what the effect of chatting in bed with friends uh, for non-work social purposes might be. It could be even good helping people detach before sleep and perhaps even counterbalancing the problematic physiological impact of phone light. Um, I'm not so sure about that, but in any case, let's, uh, let's hold the discussion right here, take a commercial break. When we come back, we'll finish up talking about the potential negative impact of smartphone use at night, and we'll have more. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about the negative impact of smartphone use for business on sleep quality. Now, uh, the recommendation is not to take the smartphone to bed. It's an individual choice. Some days that can be hard. But the study we're talking about highlights that at least with respect to work use, there are consequences for the next day to having that phone on at night. Now, the idea back when the BlackBerry was so popular was that workers were almost always on those BlackBerries. They were addicted to them. And now the widespread adoption of Uh, other types of smartphones is exacerbating that trend. The problem is that the benefit of always being available also comes with expectations. Workers feel obligated to always be reachable, to respond immediately, and to get fast replies. It's a new and transformative cultural norm which we're navigating without clearly defined boundaries. So what can workers do to adapt to this new reality? Unplugging at night is not a bad idea. But if employers don't make clear they're on board, it's going to be difficult. Now, if you recall on a previous show, uh, I did talk about how there are some companies who are taking some steps to reduce worker burnout and uh, encouraging Unplugging. One even said they were going to deactivate someone's email account after a certain hour in the evening. Uh, we can only hope 
that that trend continues. But if your company isn't so inclined, then it's up to you to guard jealously uh, the quality of your sleep, unplug and disconnect, preferably an hour or more before your bedtime. So you have that relaxation wind-down time. Uh, let your brain's natural mechanisms, mechanisms for facilitating sleep take over, including avoiding that, blight, that bright uh, blue light, rather, uh, that blue wavelength of bright light that comes from uh, smartphone and other screen displays. Uh, keep it from suppressing melatonin secretion and allow yourself a good night's sleep. Now, if you remember, they found out in that research that uh, the effect of using the smartphone at night seemed to be more pronounced in people who have a low sense of job control. Those who had a greater degree of control over their job suffered less of this smartphone-related energy depletion in the next, the next morning compared to those who felt their job control was generally low. Those folks suffered more of this tiredness the next morning from using their smartphones for business at night. Well, this next article follows nicely from that in general, talking about feeling in control. Uh, new research about this finds that if that's how you feel, it may actually enable you to live longer. And if you feel like you have most things in your life under your control, this could make you feel even more confident and perhaps, according to this new research, live longer than other people. Now, that connection holds only for people with less education, however, and the study findings are not yet definitive. It's difficult to specifically determine how one part of life, a sense of control over events, affects lifespan when so many other factors are involved. Still, the researchers behind the study say they've found strong evidence that a sense of control can more than make up for the months of life that are lost on average when a person isn't well-educated. Health and longevity are not just due to health care access. Attitudes make a difference. How you construe your circumstances and challenges determine whether you take action or give up or feel stressed or motivated. Now, the study was sponsored by the United States National Institutes of Health, and it appeared online on February 3rd in the journal Health Psychology. Researchers already know that people who feel helpless instead of in control tend to suffer from greater stress, which can be harmful to health. Keep in mind the very old research looking at worker-related stress, and if you compare the person who is operating a jackhammer at a, destruction, at a construction site and the person standing next to them assisting them, uh, the person who is operating the jackhammer is exposed to a great deal of noise and vibration. You would think they're under a tremendous amount of stress, but it turns out they're in control of when that jackhammer is on and they can anticipate the noise and the vibration. Whereas the person standing next to them assisting them or 
waiting for them to make some progress with the digging to do something is under less control. They don't know when to anticipate the onset of the vibration and the noise, and they don't know when it will stop. So they're subject to greater stress than the jackhammer operator. Now, poorer people and those with lower levels of education are, in general, are at greater risk of poor health and shortened lifespans. But the new study aimed to look at how both a sense of control and educational level combine to affect lifespan. The researchers tracked more than 6,100 people in the United States who responded to health surveys from 1994 to 1996 to see what happened to them by 2009. Nearly 600 participants that were aged 25 to 74 in the mid-1990s died by 2009. The researchers found that the risk of dying increased among those who had lower levels of education, but just having a sense of control counteracted this increase in risk. And that trend held up even after the researchers adjusted the statistics so they wouldn't be thrown off by factors such as whether someone smoked. But among people with higher levels of education, those with at least a college degree, feeling a sense of control didn't seem to make a major difference in lifespan. Why is a sense of control so important? People with a high and low sense of control will see the same situation differently, perhaps as a challenge versus a threat. That has implications for what actions they take, if any, and for how much stress they experience. It's important to understand that the study looks only at the sense of control people perceive they have, whether individuals that they studied actually have control over their lives actually is irrelevant for the purposes of the study. Again, it's the sense or perception of control or not and the attitude that someone adapts toward what challenges they face that makes the difference, but only apparently in uh, people with low educational status. Perceptions of control can be partially derived from happiness or satisfaction, and there is probably a feedback process at work. A low sense of control may lead to less happiness, which in turn would lead to even lower sense of control, thus a negative feedback loop. The findings show that simply being poor or uneducated doesn't automatically translate to feeling helpless. The idea that someone with low education can have high levels of perceived control and outlive their peers with the same education is a powerful finding. But what the article about this research doesn't say is where does that leave those who are well educated uh, and you don't see that difference in lifespan between among that group, between those who have uh, a high versus low sense of control. Well, <clears throat> I really don't think it's any more complicated than just the fact that having uh, a higher education level most likely confers its own advantage 
in terms of lifespan uh, compared to lower education, and <clears throat> therefore you're not seeing as big a difference when you look at one other factor, that being a sense of control or not. So there you have it. Low or high sense of control uh, definitely affects how you adapt to stress and maybe even your lifespan, especially uh, if you are not very highly educated. Next up on tonight's show, let's take a look at a children's mental health update. <clears throat> and this is for parents of children who have anxiety. Uh, the article is called Childhood Anxiety Disorders, What Can Parents Do? Anxiety is estimated to affect one in five children in the United States, but only about half of the children and teens who receive treatment actually achieve long-term relief. This according to a new study by researchers from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and five other institutions. And the study was published in the journal JAMA Psychiatry, Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. The study, believed to be the first of its kind, looked at 283 patients between the ages of 11 and 26 for six years after they were diagnosed with and treated for anxiety. Researchers said the results show how important it is for doctors and therapists to follow up with patients even after they have received treatment for their anxiety and appear to be recovering. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States and affect about 40 million United States adults 18 and older. That, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, or the ADAA. About 8% of teens aged 13 to 18 are also affected, with symptoms commonly emerging around age 6 that according to the National Institute of Mental Health, which estimates that about 25% of those children will experience anxiety into adulthood. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we come back, we'll finish up our discussion of childhood anxiety disorders and hopefully some good advice for parents, right? And then we'll get to more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. Have you checked out the only online guide where employers, health plans, brokers, and consultants can navigate private exchange and defined contribution markets? Browse PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today. The emergence of private health insurance exchanges represents perhaps the most significant shift in how Americans purchase health benefits in years. As employers move their employee population into private exchanges, this trend is on a growth projection into the 2015 benefit year and beyond, according to research published by Allegis Technologies. Visit PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today to browse our national searchable directory and for Healthcare Exchange Solutions magazine and newsletter. Be sure to submit your listing for inclusion in this groundbreaking guide at www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. That's www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, going over all the latest mental health related news with you. And I want to remind you anyone who has questions about mental health related concerns, whether you're having problems yourself or someone close to you is or you just have a question or comment about anything I've discussed in the show, send those questions or comments to me via email to this email address, Dr. Scott, that's D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. And again, I want to emphasize all information kept strictly confidential. Now, before the break, we were talking about research into childhood anxiety disorders. Now, while it's normal for a child to experience symptoms of anxiety, such as nervousness or fear when facing something new or challenging, a child with a chronic anxiety disorder will experience these feelings more intensely for longer periods of time and in familiar everyday situations. A child with an anxiety disorder may experience a number of conditions that sometimes overlap, including generalized anxiety disorder, which is typically uh, excessive constant worrying, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is characterized by repetitive behaviors, separation anxiety disorder, That is what it sounds like. A common manifestation is uh, not wanting to go to school, not wanting to leave home. Social anxiety disorder, which is characterized by a fear of embarrassment in social situations or fear of being judged or scrutinized in a negative way in social situations, or other specific phobias. There appears to be an upswing in the diagnosis of anxiety disorders among kids and young adults. A 2000 study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology reported that the average American child in the 1980s experienced more anxiety than child patients in the 1950s. I dare say if that study were done again and looked at children in the 1990s and children in the 2000s that uh, the anxiety would be increased with each advancing decade. Research from the, uh, the Nuffield Foundation's Changing Adolescence Program states that the proportion of 15 and 16 year olds reporting frequently feeling anxious or depressed has doubled in the last 30 years from 1 in 30 to 2 in 30 for boys and from 1 in 10 to 2 in 10 for girls. 
The two most common treatments for children with anxiety are prescription medications and cognitive behavioral therapy. A combination of the two has been shown to be more effective. In cognitive behavioral therapy, a therapist teaches the child how to cope with the symptoms of anxiety and develop positive thinking strategies. In the Johns Hopkins study that we're talking about, participants were treated with medication, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, or both. Six years after treatment, 47%, almost half, of the 288 subjects were symptom-free, while 70% needed further therapy in the years following the initial treatment. Researchers also found that girls were twice as likely to suffer from anxiety after the initial treatment than boys, which may be due to hormonal and environmental differences. Those who were effectively treated and who responded to the treatment initially were more likely to be healthy at the follow-up observation. The other half relapsed and had anxiety at the follow-up, which clearly indicates that a better job needs to be done helping kids with anxiety. And why is it that 70% needed further therapy? Uh, that probably means the therapy is being cut off too quickly. Anxiety is caused by a combination of environmental stress and genetics. Along with gender, researchers found that family dynamics played a significant role in the risk of having long-term anxiety. In the context of this study, kids who came from a family that had more positive interactions and clear rules were more likely to be in remission at the follow-up observation period. Parents can do their part by making sure to create a positive and supportive environment for their child. Children of adults with an anxiety disorder are seven times more likely to develop the disorder themselves, according to a 2009 study at Johns Hopkins. This recent study found that as few as eight weekly family sessions of CBT reduced symptoms and minimized the chance that the child would develop anxiety later in life. Eight sessions is not that many. If it's every week, that's only two months. Anxiety is considered a gateway disorder because kids who have these illnesses are more likely to have adult psychiatric problems like depression. To illustrate this point, it's often thought that something like separation anxiety disorder in a kid will manifest itself as social anxiety disorder in an adult. In order to prevent a relapse of anxiety, parents should continue to be vigilant with respect to monitoring anxiety symptoms, look for telltale signs that a child is experiencing chronic anxiety, including avoiding certain situations, constant or frequent feelings of anxiety itself, thinking about worst-case scenarios, and focusing on the negative, 
If these symptoms begin to emerge after they've been treated, parents should get back in touch with their provider for a checkup. And although this type of treatment does not come cheaply, and often health insurance cover, coverage for it is quite limited, uh, I submit that if the parents have adequate means to pay for it, that the investment in ensuring a proper, thorough course of treatment of sufficient length to get the anxiety into remission and prevent relapse will pay off handsomely in terms of far less mental health problems for that kid as they grow into adulthood. All right, well now I've got a few articles um, that demonstrate very powerful linkages between <clears throat> physical medical problems and the treatments for them and uh, mental health and the condition of our mental states. First one is a study that links steroid-dependent asthma to depression. So those of you listening who are asthma sufferers or have um, children or other relatives who are asthma sufferers definitely want to listen up to this next item. People with severe asthma who rely on prednisone are more than three times more likely to be depressed than those with severe cases who don't use prednisone and those with mild to moderate asthma. This according to a new study from the Netherlands. Prednisone, which is a steroid, uh, prednisone-dependent asthma patients deserve screening for depression and anxiety, both to alleviate their suffering and possibly to improve their physical health through mental health treatment. There is a well-established connection with asthma as well as chronic illness in general and higher reports of depression than in the general population. Prednisone is a steroid anti-inflammatory medication used to treat asthma attacks, often among people with severe symptoms. Previous research has linked steroid use to depression and other mood problems, and links in both directions have been found between depression and the severity of asthma symptoms. To examine depression risk among asthma patients, researchers looked at 187 patients 67 with severe prednisone-dependent asthma, 47 with severe non-prednisone-dependent asthma, and another 73 who had mild to moderate asthma. The people in the three groups were similar, although prednisone-dependent patients tended to be older with greater limitations in their ability to breathe. All patients answered questions about depression and anxiety, as well as questions designed to detect personality traits that could contribute to their risk of mood issues. The researchers found that patients with severe prednisone-dependent asthma were 3.4 times more likely to be depressed than non-prednisone-dependent patients with severe asthma, and 3.5 times more likely to be depressed than patients who had mild to moderate asthma. 
the prednisone-dependent patients were also 2.5 times more likely to have anxiety compared to patients with mild to moderate symptoms, but there was no significant difference when compared to those with severe non-prednisone-dependent asthma. Researchers didn't find any significant differences in <coughs> personality traits among the participants. The report was in the journal Respiratory Medicine. The authors point out that the non-prednisone-dependent asthma patients had depression and anxiety scores that were similar to those of the general public, while the prednisone-dependent patients had scores similar to patients with other serious medical conditions. Increased risk of depression might be due to the stress of the treatment rather than the severity of the illness. This would be similar to other chronic illnesses such as diabetes that require complex daily treatment regimens. It's not really disease severity so much, but think of what it does speak to is the level of maintenance required. It reminds you of your illness all the time. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we come back more on the link between steroids and asthma and depression and other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news, industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, annual publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan. Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. 
In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you here on America's Web Radio. And we're talking about how <clears throat> prednisone dependent asthma or asthma patients who need steroids, there's a link between that and depression. Having long term untreated depression or anxiety can also in turn potentially lead to further illness, especially if it affects patients' ability to take care of their health. So this is an illustration of how a serious chronic medical problem like asthma and depression can feed into each other in a negative way. The more depressed you are, the less likely you're going to be able to take care of these personal health responsibilities. Well, it's very important for doctors to be screening for depression when treating patients who are steroid-dependent asthmatics, and also caregivers and loved ones should go along on office visits to make sure these concerns are expressed to and addressed by the doctors. Now, let's move on to a study that links anxiety to stroke risk. Could anxiety boost the risk of having a stroke? A new long-term study suggests just that. The greater the anxiety, the greater the risk for stroke. Study participants who suffered the most anxiety had a 33% higher risk for stroke compared to those with the lowest anxiety levels. This is thought to be one of the first studies to show an association between anxiety and stroke, but not everyone is convinced the connection is real. Researchers pointed out that anxiety can be related to smoking and increased pulse and blood pressure, which are known risk factors for stroke. Whether you buy into the findings or not, if you're interested to look at it further, It was published back on December 19th in the online edition of the journal called Stroke. The study was led by a cardiovascular behavioral medicine researcher in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, where the team collected data on more than 6,000 people aged 25 to 74 when they enrolled in the first United States National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which was started 
in the early 1970s. This is a treasure trove of health information from a large number of people that has spawned innumerable research studies looking at all different kinds of diseases. These people were interviewed and had medical tests and completed questionnaires to assess their levels of anxiety and depression. Over the ensuing 22 years, the researchers used hospital or nursing home records and death certificates to keep track of strokes among the participants. Investigators found that even after taking into account other factors, even modest increases in anxiety were associated with greater odds of having a stroke. Everyone has some anxiety now and then, but when it's elevated and or chronic anxiety, it may have an effect on your vasculature, that's your blood vessel system, years down the road. <clears throat> it's not clear whether the anxiety itself increases the risk of stroke or if the rise is due to the behaviors people who have severe anxiety exhibit. For example, such people tend to smoke, they're more likely to be smokers, and they're more likely to be physically inactive. Again, known risk factors for stroke. In addition, the higher stress hormone levels, higher heart rate, and higher blood pressure could also be factors. <clears throat> now, the, um, the interesting part to me about this article is the stress hormone levels because what that does is the elevated stress hormones increase the risk of inflammatory proteins in the blood and we, we know this happens in people with anxiety so that could be the link between increased anxiety and risk of stroke uh, the higher levels in the blood of the inflammatory proteins Clearly, more studies are needed to confirm or discredit this association between high anxiety and stroke. Uh, there have been studies that link stroke with depression, but the effects of anxiety haven't been studied in depth. Anxiety is one of the most common mental health problems people face, and a lot more people have anxiety than depression. It is often overlooked. Treating anxiety may or may not lower the risk for stroke, but it certainly would improve the patient's quality of life. All right, and now let's move on to, along similar lines, looking at anxiety or stress and cardiovascular health. Here's a study that came out almost exactly the same time, or the report about it says there's a stress gene which uh, if you have this gene in your DNA, it might raise the odds for a heart attack and death. A genetic variant occurring in a significant number of people with heart disease appears to raise the odds for heart attack or death by 38%, according to a new study. This stress reaction gene, which Duke University scientists previously linked to an overproduction of cortisol, that is the stress hormone that can affect uh, heart risks, 
was found in about 17% of men and 3% of women with heart disease. The new finding about this gene from Duke researchers offers a potential new explanation for a biological predisposition to heart disease and early death. The research may eventually lead to personalized therapies for heart disease patients. If the findings were replicated, then the next step would be to test people uh, on a widespread basis for this stress gene and then watch them more closely. The study was published back on December 18th in the journal PLOS One. Researchers ran genetic analyses on more than 6,100 white men and women who were part of a large database of Duke heart catheterization patients. Two-thirds of the participants were men, limiting the generalizability of the data. Patients carrying the genetic variant experienced the highest rates of heart attacks and deaths over an average follow-up period of six years. Despite adjusting the results for heart disease risk factors such as age, obesity, and smoking history, the genetic trait was associated with a 38% higher risk of heart attack and death. This kind of association, however, does not necessarily prove a cause and effect relationship certainly is highly suspect um, and in many cardiology circles stress is well known to be uh, an additional risk factor for heart attack as well as stroke in addition to the more commonly known uh, factors such as obesity, increased cholesterol, smoking and high blood pressure and so on. No word yet on when people would be tested for this gene and the implications uh, of such testing. Many of you may have read uh, psychologist Dr. Gray's book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. There is uh, actually uh, a play based on that theme as well. And uh, some research was published uh, a short time ago that showed that there are brain scans that have been done that may support this Venus-Mars divide between the sexes. While not every woman is intuitive or every man handy with tools, neurological scans of young males and females suggest that, on average, their brains really do develop differently. The research comes with a caveat. It doesn't connect the brain scan findings to the actual ways that these participants behave in real life, and it only looks at overall differences among males and females. Still, the findings conform, <coughs> rather confirm our intuition that men are predisposed for rapid action and women are predisposed to think about how things feel. This really helps us understand why men and women are different. Researchers use scans to explore the brains of 428 men 521 women aged 8 to 22. The goal was to better understand the connectivity in the brain and determine if certain types of wiring are in good shape or or like a road 
that could be broken or has a bad rough patch that needs to be covered over. The study found that on average, the brains of men seem to be better equipped to comprehend what people perceive and how they react to it. Women, on average, appear to be better able to connect the parts of their brains that handle analysis and intuition. It starts when they're young. It manifests itself when they're adolescents. To put the results another way, men's brains are biased toward rapid understanding of a situation and how to respond to it, especially in how to act and move in response to information. Women's brains are biased toward integrating information with feelings. The findings suggest the hormones that begin to kick in during adolescence push the male and female brains in different directions. What does all this mean in the context of people's day-to-day lives? It tells us why, almost always, when men and women are in a car together, the man drives. His brain is biased toward being better at a moving vehicle along a road and going to the right place. The stereotype of the lost man refusing to ask for directions notwithstanding. The next step in this research is to figure out if people behave differently depending on how their brains are wired. The study appeared online back on the December December 2nd edition of the journal Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. And there you have it, neurobiology bearing up gender stereotypes. And with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's show. Uh, I certainly enjoyed bringing you this information. I hope that you enjoyed it and found it informative and interesting. And I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.